are you offering your clients the experience they really want? Or are you offering them what you think they want? Join hosts Laura Gregg and David Partain from FlexShares Exchange Traded Funds as they talk with a variety of industry experts and advisors just like you about their latest industry research to help you develop the flexible mindset you need to rise above the crowd. Hello, and thank you for joining us for another episode of the Flexible Advisor Podcast. In mid-May, FlexShares released the results of a study on building diverse advisor teams. We conducted the research in late 2019 as we sought to understand if advisory firms were truly committed to building diverse teams by race, gender, age, LGBTQ, and ability, or if there was more talk than action. We also surveyed high net worth investors to understand whether and how diversity was important to them as they searched for a financial advisor. A week or so after we released the results of this survey, our environment changed dramatically. In the wake of the brutal murder of George Floyd, the nation and even the world took to the streets to protest not only the murder of George Floyd and many others, but also to shine a bright light on the racism that continues to exist within the U.S. and beyond. While many of us realize and have realized the importance of a more diverse workforce, especially within this industry, and we've been talking about the need to enhance our diversity efforts for many years, the needle really hasn't moved. Today, we're honored to welcome Chandran Thomas, President of Northern Trust Asset Management to our podcast. Chandran is a leader who has been driving diversity, equity, and inclusion throughout his more than 16-year career at Northern Trust and beyond. Chandran is an inspiration to many, including me, in leading by example and bringing his authentic self to work while continually seeking to better understand those of us he leads. Chandran recently shared a letter with Northern Trust and on LinkedIn and with the public titled, Breaking the Silence. In the letter, he shares some of the experiences he has encountered as an African-American man in the hopes of giving a voice to the silent pain that many of our colleagues, friends, and neighbors are currently experiencing. Chandran, thank you so much for taking the time to join us today. Laurie, it is a pleasure being with you and David. Hey, Chandran, there are so many things we'd like to get your perspective on today, but I'd like to start by asking you what drove your decision to write the letter about breaking the silence? Well, David, I I appreciate the inquiry, and it's interesting because if I think about the context, and you'd be aware of this, I'd actually written two prior open letters this year, and they were both related to the pandemic. The first were just some transparent reflections I was initially sharing with our partners in asset management in terms of what I was anticipating in the early days of the pandemic, which was really unique. Uh, And then as we we move further into it, um, there was a perspective that I, I shared in an open letter with business and civic leaders. And the gist of that or the theme there was really thinking about what I refer to as the need for, for compassionate leadership. In particular, one of the things I'd highlighted in that more uh, extended open letter was that there were many inequities that were being exposed by the pandemic. And, you know, it's easy to kind of, if you're you're not really 
thinking compassionately and leading compassionately to look past those, but really to think about how we wanted to show up as leaders, how we can close the distance and actually not just make sure our organizations thrive, but lean into what compassion really means, which means to suffer with, to come alongside people and help them in the situation. And then, of course, the events of the the recent weeks, um, most notably uh, the abhorrent killing of George Floyd came up. And so just being on that continuum already, David, I I just felt very strongly. I mean, I knew um, that I, I, I had to speak up. But what I also knew is when it pertains to the issue of race, it's a proverbial third rail in many organizations and certainly in the workplace. And so I felt that if I took an approach that was authentic, that was transparent, uh, that was, was, was even vulnerable, my hope was that others would not only get to appreciate uh, what people were experiencing, but regardless of their experience or background, would be more inclined to be open and transparent and lean into a real dialogue as a first step. All right, so let's talk about that third rail. And I've known you for some time, and you speak often about the many different communities of which you are a member. And I am sure that you received a variety of responses from some of those communities on your decision to speak out. Do you mind talking about both sides of the coin, so to speak, on the favorable responses you've received and also maybe some of the negative pushback? Sure. Well, well, the first thing I would say is when you step into these moments, and as I said in the letter, it, it would have been easy and more more comfortable, right, to avoid the dialogue altogether. But again, I felt it was important to speak into it in that moment. And, and there has been an overwhelmingly encouraging response uh, from, from people from all backgrounds. One of the reasons I, I think is because in the letter I talked about the the perspectives on all sides, oftentimes the people who are most uh, directly impacted by it are, 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 in a sense, fearful many times of speaking up because of fear of reprisal. There are those who actually are, are in the majority, and, and they are bothered by maybe things that they see, but they, they're not comfortable in terms of knowing how to speak into it or, or fearful that, in a sense, they'll say something that's not politically correct. And so you, you had these aspects, but when you address them openly in the letter, what I found is it invited people to, um, in a sense, respond to and lean into those things. As you noted, David, whenever you take a stand on something uh, that you believe, a conviction that you have, almost by definition, there will be some levels of opposition. So it certainly has been the case in more limited uh, responses uh, that there have been those who, in referring to even my own personal experiences or others like myself who have have shared some of the, um, again, discriminatory treatment that we've, we've experienced at the hands of law enforcement, I've had people say, well, listen, in some respects, what you got was justified. Or I've had others say, listen, you just have to appreciate that's what's necessary in today's culture to protect us. And, and, and so, again, these experiences from some people's perspective are not discriminatory. It's just law enforcement officers doing a difficult job. So you certainly have different perspectives, but, but my, the response I've got for the most part has been overwhelmingly encouraging in terms of how people have engaged. All right, so I'm going to widen the conversation with you a little bit, and you are a leader of an almost trillion-dollar asset manager business. So would you share some thoughts on the role leaders should be considering playing during these times? And probably even more importantly, their continued role as inevitably time marches on and the news headlines also move on as well. So one of the things um, to your question, David, I'll, I'll start with the broad component because now as, as 
some people have noted we're facing a dual crisis. We, we have this pandemic, which is really unique, right? Because it's not like the other crises we've experienced, David. You think about the financial crisis, I like to say to people, you know, you could at least go home and experience some sort of normalcy, right? But when you have a health in uh, a humanitarian crisis, when you have something that's impacting people on all sides of their lives, they can't go, go home and go away from it. And so the stresses that it puts on people means that you as a leader have to think about how you show up differently in that. You overlay what has been a longstanding issue as it pertains to racial discrimination in an environment, all these things taking place where we can't even connect in the intimate and personal ways that we would more normally be able to. And so one, leaders have to appreciate that our voice is often our most powerful uh, and vocal tool. So how we communicate matters in all instances, but particularly in this kind of environment. Honesty, transparency, and humility, th that's like my trifecta. That has to be demonstrated. People need to know that they're going to hear the truth from you, even if it's sometimes things that are uncomfortable or they may not want to hear. They need to understand that they can trust you and they also need to understand that you're actively engaged. And the second thing I talked about in terms of, um, you know, truly compassionate, you know, it's, it's one thing, one of the things I've observed is there's not usually a shortage of intellectual quotient in these situations, David. We're not in the room trying to say we, we, we can't add up enough IQ. It's, you know, the emotional quotient. It's the compassion and understanding that you can't truly lead well if you can't empathize with people that you're leading, if you don't care enough in a sense to not only listen intellectually, but listen emotionally, what I like to refer to as listening with your head and your heart. And so that's really essential. And the reason it's essential because ultimately to solve these, it's going to take the entire village and you have to be able to get the inputs from the people around you and you're working with to actually solve uh, the very acute challenges that we have. And then finally, as it pertains very specifically to racial uh, discrimination, it starts with we have to change the dialogue. So we can't address an issue that we're not willing to transparently talk about. And that means as a leader, you have to often lead making the environment emotionally safe for people to share and engage. You as a leader have to become the change. Here's what I say, and this applies to me too. In the culture that we live in, in the world that we have grown up in, every single one of us has processed some things wrong as it pertains uh, to this concept called race. And so we have to all appreciate that whether it's conscious or unconscious, there are certain biases that we have, certain things that we have to unlearn if we're going to come together closer as communities. And if that's going to happen in an organization, the leader has to be out front setting the example being vulnerable, admitting where maybe they have had blind spots or have blind spots or shortcomings, what they're doing to become the change that they want to see in the organizations. And as you might imagine, that means if in fact you show up in that way as a leader, people will follow your lead. Thank you for that, Chandra. And this obviously has been weighing heavy on all of us. And and I, I think about, is this a moment or a movement? And I feel and I hope and I pray that this is a movement that leads us further along. Last week, we, we welcomed Connie Lindsay, uh, Northern Trust Head of Corporate Social Responsibility to the podcast. And, and it was a great conversation. And she talked a lot about the need to really clarify the difference between 
racial equality, and racial equity. And as you know, people use them, those terms, uh, myself included up until recently, very interchangeably. So I'm curious if you think that our industry really understands the difference between equity and equality. Let's let's say this. First of all, I would start by saying whether you're talking about equality or equity, we have work to do on both. And if you were to go further to say, um, do people often appreciate or even think about the distinction between those, which is relevant, my answer to to that would be in most instances, no. Because equity, if if I were to make, make it simple, equality, you know, we think about that in terms of aims in terms of pr- promoting fairness, right? When, when you think about equity, that's really about ultimately ensuring that everyone has what they need to be successful, both in terms of equal access to the opportunity, but then again, the tools that you need to capitalize on that opportunity. So, so maybe if I gave a tangible example, we live in the great state of Illinois. And if you use the uh, public school system as an example, anybody in the state of Illinois that's a, a citizen of this great state, they have equal access to public education. That's equality, right? Now, here's the interesting thing that I didn't know until I joined an educational um, nonprofit. If you go to school, public school, anywhere in the Chicago and Chicagoland area, because you're in Illinois, everyone has the same number of days that they have to actually be in school. And I think on average, that's about 174 days, right? School days. But here's what's interesting. If you live in the inner city in Chicago and go to public school, you have about 15% less instructional time, the actual hours you spend learning, than, say, the suburb that I live in, which is south of the city. I didn't even know that when I moved out there. Let me tell you something even more powerful. If you compare the same, quote-unquote, public school in the city to the North Shore, our most wealthiest suburbs, it's 35% less instructional time, give or take, in the classroom. So that's the difference, do you see what I'm saying, between equality and equity. And so think about the cumulative effect of a student that's in the inner city versus one in the North Shore, both going to public school, but the cumulative effect of having 35% less instructional time over the course of their K through 12 education. And then we, we magically wonder, why the outcomes in terms of quote-unquote educational achievement or attainment are different. I, I had no idea. That is a great example. So you're president of Northern Trust Asset Management, and obviously that gives you a seat at the organization's most senior executive table. And I'm curious, you know, in your current role, which I think you've had for about three years uh, or so now, has that enabled you to to move forward in terms of diversity, equity, and inclusion for the organization? And then, you know, secondly, have you seen Northern Trust progressing on building more racial equity, like you just spoke about, within the organization? The the short answer in both of those is yes, but the longer answer is we, like other organizations, have more work to do. So first of all, the, on the first part of your question, being at the, uh, the table, so to speak, is really relevant. And, and, and people who have heard me ever speak on this issue, I say that if you are really serious about driving diversity, equity, and inclusion in the organization, it has to start at the top. And, and a lot of people want to start out at, in a sense at the bottom, and they wonder why it's hard. 
um, because you're effectively saying, I'm going to start a program that's going to take us 30, 40 years to realize. Why, boy, by the way, many of the people who are in the current leadership and decision-making chairs may not even be there. And in many instances, almost assuredly will not. And so being at the table means, A, there's a perspective that I bring to the executive management table that was not there before. We now, um, as of this year, have two people um, that are backgrounds of, that are ethnic minorities on the management group. I was the first in the 130 year of the history of the company. And as you know, we already had gender diversity, but think about as you, as that senior most leadership team at the organization has changed and evolved, it means the tool set and the perspectives that we have to address any problem, certainly uh, the problem of dealing with uh, systemic discrimination that affects our society and all of our organizations is certainly better. It also means that you actually are able to do very important things, like given my role, right? Two of the most important things that we do is we oversee the allocation of resources, right? And we help to ensure the, the, the professional development of talented people. And so one of the most important things I'm able to do in my capacity is ensure the processes and the practices that we have in place that dictate those things are actually equitable. And so those are the kind of things to your, your first question. In terms of the progress that Northern has made, I mean, I look at whether it's at the management group level. Our three respective businesses, you know, certainly, you know, as part of the asset management, you know, what we have been able to accomplish in terms of things like diversity of our executive leadership team. If you think about vendors that we, we deal with, whether it be trading firms or uh, emerging or minority managers, the kind of things that we've put in place and, and those sorts of things, we have more that we want and need to do. But we can see in those areas tangible progress. And so we have to continue to hold our feet to the fire because, again, there are a bevy of things that I look at every day in this area like others, Laura, where I believe we can and we need to improve. But I'm encouraged. And what, what gets me fired up every day is the fact that I do believe that we're on a path toward continual improvement. I have to say I'm I'm coming up on my 12 year anniversary at, at Northern Trust and when I joined Northern Trust it was the first place I had been that I could see for myself the gender diversity and also the racial diversity and that has continued to grow throughout my time and it's it's just really really heartening. But clearly you must have overcome many hurdles on your uh, career path. You know, I know that even before you were at that most senior table, you were working hard to advance diversity within the organization. So what can you tell us about, you know, or what ideas can you give those of us who are not at that table and are at different parts of our career on how we can support the effort? There are a couple of things. Like one is, here's one of the, I think one of the hard things I, I learned now, maybe it's part of my wiring, but I think that this, the first important thing for us all to do is to show up. And when I mean show up, I mean show up. And so um, I, I remember many years ago uh, going to a presentation that was very impactful. Um, and a gentleman was talking about people's experience in the workplace. And he said, for most people, it's like they show up to work and they park in the proverbial lot and they take kind of the best of who they are and pack it in the trunk before they go into the office. The first part of what has to happen if we want to advance things like diversity, right, is understanding 
we're all wonderfully unique. We all bring different perspectives. And if we ourselves, in a sense, self-edit, if we decide that for the sake of, in a sense, fully conforming to a normative standard, we're not going to share those parts of perspective that might be additive and unique to us, then that in and of itself starts the depreciation of creating a diverse and inclusive environment. Now, again, there are certain shared things in any culture. So when you go to work for a place, you're in part saying, I want to be part of that culture. Um, but you, you need to contribute your perspective. So the first thing is literally just show up. And then once you show up, as long as you are contributing in a positive and constructive way, I like to tell people that earns you the right to speak up. Right. You ever heard those uh, little safety videos? You know, it says, if you see something, say something. Right. <laughs> yeah. How many times if we're honest and every single one of us has done this so I can raise my hand where we have seen something that, for instance, we know there's a value that we profess as a company, but it's not being demonstrated. Maybe we, we, we see an instance where sometimes people call them microaggressions. Sometimes they're just aggressions. Right. Somebody's being underappreciated or always spoken over in a meeting. Someone is not actually getting credit for their contributions on a team. There are all kinds of things. And it's easy at any given moment, Laura, to let that pass, right? For the sake of, it just would be easier not to engage or not to address. But it's the accumulation of all those different things that often retard the very progress that we're seeking to make. The other thing that, that we can do, and there are many examples that I'll give, but I want to give simple ones that are impactful is, one, expose ourselves to diverse people and diverse communities. The practical reality is the vast majority of people live in monolithic communities. That means the places where they live, you know, worship, sometimes where they work, um, but works at least oftentimes the place where you can get some diversity. I mean, it's people yeah. who look like them, who, who belong to the same socioeconomic class, who reinforce all the same behaviors and perspectives that they know. And so by exposing ourselves uh, to other people in genuine ways, it helps us think more broadly. And then the flip side of that, or I would say the thing that's analogous to that is then using that exposure that we have to those diverse communities to bring those people into our workplaces. So we should be part of attracting and bringing in that talent because a lot of people uh, will have an attitude, well, that's just HR's job. But I say, no, we're all part of the culture. And each one of us, if we take that mindset, we can ensure that we truly build diverse and inclusive cultures. I, lo I love that idea because as I'm, tra well, I guess I'm not traveling so much these days, but as I was talking to people, but which kind of brought out the whole diversity study that uh, David and I worked on, I, I would hear time and time again, I, we, we want to hire diverse people, but they don't apply. And it was almost as if that was good enough, that, that was a good enough reason. So uh, I love that last example, and, and I'm going to talk about it uh, frequently from here on out. Thank you. So, Shandran, I want to take us back to the letter that you wrote. And in right. that letter, you shared some of the obstacles you were forced to deal with. Would you mind sharing some professional challenges that you faced while conducting business that should be top of mind for non-diverse managers and advisors? 
So it's interesting, right? Because if you're able to have real transparent conversations with colleagues, some of the things I would share won't necessarily be exceptional, but they're not talked about. And it's certainly true among often our minority colleagues and also our, our, our women colleagues. Like one of, some of the things that, you know, I've often encountered in being in the workplace is one, the kind of roles that I've had or I've worked in there's not necessarily a lot of diversity in the roles. And so, David, it's been everything from I've went into situations where people have either assumed on presentation that, that I wasn't the person or the senior person in the role, or I wasn't the person that they were expecting because they hadn't met me. And those are just small things, but they, that's based on what their perception is, was in what I looked like when I worked walked into the room. I've been in other interesting situations where there have been conference calls and people have said things that were either racially insensitive or um, they were insensitive as it pertains to gender. Now, some of that may have been that was a typical modus operandi and maybe just an in-going assumption, right, that no one of a different background was on the call. But it begs another question, right? We talk about the silence because I would argue to you, David, it shouldn't have mattered whether I was on the call and of, of a certain background or persuasion or not. It begs the question, in what context should that ever be appropriate or comfortable? So there are so many different things that you, you think about in terms of experiences one might have over the course of a career. But let me tell you something, you know, the experiences that I've had that have also balanced that. I remember early on in my career, I, I started out at Morgan Stanley. And so I worked uh, in the fixed income division and we had huge trading floor, you know, all the different groups. I think there were approximately, David, 600 people just on the one floor I worked on. And, and there were a grand total of uh, three African-Americans on the floor. And I was new and and younger in the business. I'll never forget in two different groups that I worked in very early on, two of the senior most successful, you know, traders in the group engaging with me and sort of taking me under their wing. And and I just think that without saying it, they I you know kind of understood one, I I I had some things that I could contribute or bring to the table, but certainly I was different and new to that uh, world. And so, again, those people who are, in a sense, those friendly faces that lean in, that help you uh, get included in, in an environment where on the surface it might appear you're different, uh, and you can realize by their engagement and their efforts, the things that we have in common, not necessarily our differences. And the flip side of that is important, too. It's not washing away those differences. It's the both and, realizing, yes, what we have in common but also taking advantage of and valuing the differences. Wow, that's great. I wanna close with uh, one last question. And the reality is that the majority of financial advisors, well, they kind of look like me, white, middle-aged and male, not nearly as good looking, but that's a topic for another podcast. <laughs> so as the demographics and the wealth, this trend, if it continues within this country and it continues to shift to women and people of color, what ideas do you have for non-diverse advisors that want to serve clients that don't look like them? A couple of ideas. Like, so first of all, one of the great things about the advisor space and community, David, think about the depth of experience and expertise. Many of the advisors, certainly the ones we have to serve, have built up over years. I mean, it's just incredible, right? And so first of all, the first thing I would say from a mindset standpoint as you begin to think about legacy and the impact 
that they can have on successive generations of just people in terms of how we think about and how we approach wealth. So I think just a mindset of, of, of shifting some of the, the, the time and attention to thinking about legacy, thinking about teaching, thinking about sustainability, not unique necessarily to just their own practice, but I'm talking about unique to um, the wonderful advisory business that in different ways or fashion we all get to participate in. So now if you start with that mindset, then it just becomes like all other opportunities we look at. We have a dynamic space that we love and we're engaged in. We have an evolving demographic. So what kind of things do you do to, to take advantage of that? Well, first of all, you learn about the demographic. And so I think there is the engagement that we talked about, exposing yourself to uh, people from communities that don't look like you. One of the best pieces of advice, uh, David, and, I, and I'm talking about this in a number of another for, a format where I'm talking to advisors is actually purposely look to diversify your client base. Because here's why. All good advisors are used to and excel at serving clients well. And as soon as you make a conscious decision to say, I'm going to have a different client base, you absolutely will organize yourself to serve that client base well. I think the other thing, uh, we talked about this, listen, just commit to diversifying the advisor team. And it's amazing, once you begin to span out on whether it be gender and ethnic diversity, I think this is particularly helpful when people can put together a team structure. It, it opens up a variety of things and how they can think about actually not only having a diverse and inclusive business, but expanding that business. Because one of the things that you well know, David, is not only is wealth growing faster in certain communities, certainly among women, faster among ethnic minorities. But the other business reality is many of these communities are underserved, right? And so there's such an uh, interesting win-win, a tremendous opportunity for legacy. There's value creation there for uh, the owners of these firms. And so I think the people who lean into the trends as we see them, they actually have a commitment for to do good because it truly is, as someone who's part of the human community, a good thing to do. But they also realize while doing so, they'll be able to create meaningful value value, not just for their own business, but for the broader community. I think that's exciting. And the last thing I would say is hopefully through what uh, we're doing. So thank you, David, and thank you, Laura, and other organizations. As we come together, as we share perspectives and best practices, we can all help one another be better at what we're collectively seeking to achieve. Uh, that's great words to close on. Well, Shandran, thanks again for joining us today. It's always a pleasure. And thank you for sharing your informed perspective. Thank you. If you would like to learn more about the recent FlexShares study on teams and diversity, just go to go.flexshares.com backslash diversity. You can also read and subscribe to our blog, which has featured a wide variety of content, including insights on this valuable topic on flexshares.com. For myself and Laura Gregg, we want to say thank you to you, our listeners, for joining us on today's episode of The Flexible Advisor. Thank you for listening to The Flexible Advisor podcast. Click the subscribe button below to be notified when new episodes become available. The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the guest and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of FlexShares Exchange Traded Funds or Northern Trust. All investments involve risk, including possible loss of principal. Before investing, 
carefully consider the FlexShare's investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. This and other information is in the prospectus and a summary prospectus, copies of which may be obtained by visiting www.flexshares.com. Read the prospectus carefully before you invest. Foresight Fund Services, LLC Distributor. The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only. The content is not intended to be a substitute for professional investing advice. Always seek the advice of your financial advisor or other qualified financial service provider with any questions you may have regarding your investment planning. Although we attempt to keep the information complete and current, we do not warrant that the content herein is accurate, complete, or current. We make no commitment to update the content herein. It is your responsibility to verify any information before relying on it. The content of this podcast may include technical inaccuracies. We may make changes in the products and or services described herein at any time. We provide you this information with the understanding that we are not rendering accounting, legal, or tax advice. Please consult your legal or tax advisor concerning such matters.